Please stand for the reading of God's word from Revelation chapters 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Thank you, Selah, and good morning again. Uh, we are concluding our Advent series this morning uh, that we have been calling Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, uh, taken from the hymn by the same name. Uh, it's a series that's drawn out themes of what we hope for in the Christian life. A king who would come and set us free, who would make everything right for all people everywhere, who would free us from our fears, from our pains, from our disappointments, from our sins, and who more than that wouldn't just set us free from the things that have gone wrong, but who would ultimately be the, the imprint behind everything that we've ever been longing for behind all the hopes that we have, all the dreams that we have, that, that the shadow of those things would ultimately be coming from the light that is Jesus Christ, that he would be what our hearts most desire, so that in this season where we can so easily put our hope in gifts that fade and things that wear out, we would instead find our hearts anchored in a hope of something that does not give way so easily, that we would find our hopes in something eternal in Jesus Christ. And so today we're concluding our series in the book of Revelation, a passage that introduces us to this king that we have been waiting to meet, whose birth we celebrate today. But this passage gives us the picture not of, of an infant Jesus with his glory concealed as a tiny, frail human, but of an otherworldly Jesus with his glory fully revealed. And through it, we see the impact of what meeting that glory, meeting the risen, exalted Jesus Christ, whose birth we remember today, what, what meeting him does to our lives. And so to look at that, I want us to, to look at two things. Seeing Jesus like this 
in this passage, particularly verses 12 through 16, and then what seeing Jesus like this does to us through verses 9 through 12 and 17 through 19. So kids, this morning, what I want you to pay attention for, if you've got your sermon worksheets or some things to color on, and that first point, seeing Jesus like this, I want you to listen for the words that talk about what Jesus looks like. And I want you to, to color or draw or write down your favorite description, the thing that you think is most special or different or just unimaginable about how Jesus is. Can you do that for me? If you want to show me afterwards, that would be awesome. Or show your parents, show another friend. But let's try and listen for what this talks about that Jesus is like. And grown-ups, I want you to listen to, try to hear like a child might hear, with childlike wonder about what this Jesus is like, because that will push us into seeing what that does to John, how that changes him when he meets a Jesus like this. But before we do that, would you pray with me? Let's ask God to fill up our time. Father, we come before you once more this morning, thanking you that, that as we already prayed to you in the prayers of the people, that you hear us that you respond, that, that our prayers are not an echo out into an empty universe, but a direct speech to a God whose ear is inclined to hear us. So would you now incline our ears, our hearts, to hear you? Would you speak this morning to those young and old that you might do what only you can do, Holy Spirit, and that you would lift us up? In your name we pray, amen. So if you have your Bibles, please have those open. If you don't, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Uh, we're at the very end. Revelation is about as far along as you can get. We're going to look here in chapter 1 for this first point at verses 12 through 16. Uh, the description that John gives here is of this otherworldly reality. Uh, he is using the best images that he can to try to describe something that, that defies description. It is hard to put into words. And John is giving us a best, at best, a, a relating of what was experienced. But these things don't fully encapsulate what it is to meet Jesus. This is his attempt to translate, in some sense, what can't be translated. There is something that remains a little mysterious about this. But the essence of it comes through very clearly, which is that he sees Christ the King, Jesus, in his full undiminished glory. And doing a description of that feels probably for John at that time like a nearly impossible task to share what you saw when you see something that, that you don't have words for. But John starts describing it for us as Jesus even commands him to in this passage. And what's interesting, I think, about John's description of Jesus is that it doesn't actually start with Jesus that he tells us something about what Christ is like by telling us something about things around Jesus. What John starts telling us first in verse 12 is about these seven golden lampstands, which verse 20 says represent the seven churches that John would write to later in chapters 2 and 3. And those churches serve as, as a sample of the church as a whole. They represent God's church. And so in revealing himself to this way, in Jesus revealing himself to John as one amidst these seven lampstands, amidst his church, Revelation is showing us that to get to know Jesus, we don't do that in some kind of abstract way. Like you might learn, kids, about a star in a textbook. That's not how we get to know Jesus. We get to know Jesus in a personal way, in relationship in community, in church. 
It shows you that the getting to know Jesus is like getting to know a star personally, as if a star could be your friend and talk with you and know you and share about itself. This is the otherworldly dimension that we're talking about. Revelation and scripture is pushing on our categories for the way that we think things work. It's showing us a different reality that we don't get to know Jesus in a lab or in a corner, somewhere in a distant part of space. You get to know Jesus, the glorified Jesus even, in relationship, in community. So if you are looking for a God that you can just know by yourself or by thinking through what you might think God is like, you are missing categorically the God of the Bible. He makes himself known from beginning to end in relationship through one another. He delights to make himself known to us through each other, through our brokenness, through our mess, through the ways that he redeems us. He delights to show his glory through broken people. Like these windows almost, these broken pieces of glass together make something more. In the same way, God shows us more of who he is through bringing our brokenness together, through shining in the midst of his church. And this is a sobering realization because it's much more comfortable. You feel like you are in much more control to just think about what God is like by yourself. Think about him the way I like to think about him. Interact with him in the way that I might choose to interact with him rather than get to know him in a relationship when we encounter him like this. And yet Jesus draws us first and foremost here into the shocking discomfort of his presence, not just an abstract idea. So what's that very relational presence like then if we look at verses 13 through 16? Uh, one commentator, Grant Osborne, helps us understand what Revelation is talking about here. It's referencing a lot of biblical imagery. Jesus is showing himself as the fulfillment of many things that have been given to God's people in the past. It starts in verse 13 by describing Jesus as one like a son of man, it says. That means he is like human but also different, not just completely like us. And we'll see how different that is as this goes on because it says uh, there is some likeness here and that he is clothed in a long robe with a golden sash. It's a picture of someone that's dignified, that has esteem. It's an exalted figure. This is someone dressed in special clothing that shows that they have a special role to fulfill. Verse 14 says that Seeing Jesus like this shows that he has hair like snow, white like wool. That's as white as you could describe something in the ancient times. It's the same kind of descriptions that were used in the book of Daniel by Daniel trying to describe what he saw of God. He called him the ancient of days at that time. And his hair was white. That was in the ancient times a sign of dignity and wisdom. He has the knowledge, he has the years behind him, in other words, for peace and living life in a way that leads to flourishing. So he's not just a figure with a special purpose, but also with the resume, so to speak, to back it up. Verse 14 also says, and kids were listening for all these descriptors, he has eyes like flaming fire. This was an image of divine insight. That there is nothing that would be hidden from him, that he would see all things truly, see to the bottom of all things. 
and that he would bring right and true judgment to bear on things that were not the way that they should be. Verse 15 also says that he has feet like burnished bronze. Bronze in that time was a picture of glory and strength, something that had been refined by fire that had power to it. And at the same time, feet in the ancient world portrayed your direction in life. So together, these things show us a Christ resolutely, unswervingly walking in the right way, in the way of truth, without any deception, without setting a foot wrong, doing so with power like a fire-refined metal. He has been given a special work to do. He has the wisdom to do it. He has the insight to see what ought to be done. And he has the unswerving dedication and rightness, righteousness, to walk in the way that he ought to walk with this power. Verse 15 goes on. It says that his voice is like the roar of a waterfall, like the sound of many rushing waters. It's hard to describe exactly, but in the Old Testament, Ezekiel also described the voice of God this way. It was an image of power and strength. Kids, you think about being at the ocean and hearing the crash of waves when a big wave comes in, how loud that is, or the roar of a waterfall or a fast-moving river. It's a, it's a sound of power and force. God speaks and things move. Psalm 29 says that the voice of God strips the trees and the forests bare, that just by speaking, not even by touching, this God has authority and power to make things happen. Verse 16 says that he has seven stars in his right hand, and as verse 20 explains, those stars represent the angels of the churches. And the right hand in biblical literature is a sign of power, of control, of having control over what you set your hand to. And so this is a figure who is in complete control of even angels, of even spiritual realms, of things that would feel beyond humans. Jesus has these things simply in his right hand. That whatever powers or rival authorities might be out there, Jesus has them and holds them and tells them what to do. It's a figure of complete control. It also says he has a two-edged sword, which certainly would be here a sword of judgment, of authority. It, it pictures a figure who will have the final word, who will have the definitive say over all of life and will tell the truth as it is and bring the things that ought to be into being. And finally, it says that he has a face that's shining like the sun. It calls the mind the image of Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai. It says he had to wear a veil because his face was shining so brightly from having been in the presence of the glory of God. It's a picture of radiance, of brilliance, of goodness. As Leonard talked about, it is the opposite of darkness and not knowing which way to go. It is the fullness of light showing you where you go being the light you need. At Christmas, then, what is concealed in the vulnerable infant Jesus is revealed in Revelation as the otherworldly Christ the King. This is what Jesus is like in his full glory when he stands on the other side of his humility here on earth, which begins in his incarnation, when he took on our flesh, and not just that, when he took on poverty, Weakness, humility, 
when he suffered with us as a member of a broken world. It's on the other side of his suffering for us in his crucifixion, death, and burial, taking our sins upon him there, the righteous for the unrighteous, because he is our true king and he cares about us and he would put to death whatever would even try to harm us, whether that thing is inside us or somewhere else, and he will do that even if it means he has to die to make that happen. Jesus would kill sin to keep it from killing us, even if it meant killing him. This is who Christ came to be for us. This is the inauguration of redemption is Christmas Day. This is what he is looking forward to. And Revelation says this is who he was the whole time. There's that moment in the transfiguration in the Gospels where just for a second, the disciples see Jesus like this. Revelation is saying this has always been the case, that, that it was veiled from our sight while he was doing these things for us, while he was rescuing us. But when the rescue is complete, we get to see a Jesus like this, the one who was truly on our side. Victorious and triumphant for God's people in his full undiminished glory, having what he needs to do the job never failing at that, never going the wrong way, never leading you the wrong way. This is the king that we hope in at Christmas. So what's seeing this king like? What does it do to you when you encounter a Jesus like this, a, a Jesus who in any other way would just be shocking and, and completely surprising and yet here is somehow personal as we'll talk about. Well, seeing Jesus like this, as we'll look at verses 9 through 12 and 17 to 18, may do many things, but I want to look at what the text shows us that it clearly does to John in a few things here. What it first does is that it stuns him and humbles him. This really begins to undo John at his very fabric. It seems that he is frozen by Jesus' words, right? Jesus starts speaking in verse 10. That's when he says he hears this voice like a trumpet, but John isn't able to turn until verse 12. If you look at the text there, it says, Then I turned to look. It's as if the power of this sound has frozen him, and he is unable to move until it stops. I don't know if you've been around a large sound like that before, something that is just so loud that it's almost oppressive that you can't move until it stops. John seems frozen just by the speech of Jesus. It's as if it's too much for him. And when he finally does get it a break, when it finally does stop and he turns to see, all he can do is fall down in fear. That's essentially what it means to fall down as if you are dead, to, to almost pass out, basically. You, are, you have just become a ghost. You are white as a sheet. You are falling down on the floor. All the color is drained from you. He falls down in fear and awe, verse 17 and this happens to someone, I want you to take note, this happens to someone who is essentially in church on a Sunday, right? This is happening right now. John is in exile by himself, but it says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. John was in a posture of worshiping, of wanting to see this Jesus, and when he gets to see what he wants to see, it is almost completely too much for him to handle. It blows him away. We tend to think of God as not very much as a nice guy, as a helpful older figure, 
as a compassionate friend maybe, but Revelation shows us a God who when we truly see him is essentially too much for us to handle, even when we want to see him. Seeing him as he is is a step beyond a comfortable distance that we talked about. It's easier to maintain that comfortable distance, but seeing him revealed in this way pushes us right through that to a place where we say, I don't even know if I can handle this. Revelation wants you to see the God that you are putting your hope in is not just a paper cookie cutter God. This is not a paper tiger. This is the real thing. This is coming face to face with a lion. This is something that stuns you and freezes you. Christianity is about being brought into something more than just a story, but being face to face with a reality. Consequently, that changes your perspective. This is the second thing that we see happens to John because remember in verse 9, if you look back in the text, what does John say about himself? He describes himself as one who is a fellow sufferer, one who is in sharing in the tribulation of the church. He was in prison, in exile on the island of Patmos for his faith. He was suffering because of what he believed in there in prison. John is in deep, isolated, lonely suffering. And what happens when Jesus shows up like this? He doesn't even mention his suffering. It doesn't come up again. He doesn't fire away with questions like, where have you been? Why am I here? When are you getting me out of this? It's as if in the face of meeting Jesus... The suffering that was so heavy now has no weight. It has been made light. When we meet Jesus as he truly is, it changes our perspective on what's important, on what's urgent, on what's dangerous to us, on what's painful even. It gives us something beyond pain or relief. It gives us the living one who makes us safe, no matter what anyone else may try to do. Meeting him in his glory changes our perspective. It makes things fade from our view that once seemed so all-consuming. He changes how we understand and relate to our circumstances. The things that feel so big in life, when you meet Jesus like this, Jesus becomes big and they become small. But I know it's true of me and I'm sure it's true of you that so often it feels like the opposite is true. That our circumstances are huge and our God is so small. Revelation shows us a very different picture. That really, Jesus is massive and our problems can't compare with him. But meeting Jesus like this doesn't just stun you or change your viewpoint. It also, as we said, it's very personal somehow. It connects with you. Verse 17 says, Jesus placed his hand on John after he fell to the ground in fear. That same right hand of authority that held the angels, that held all rival powers, in gentleness and kindness reaches out and touches John in his fear. He connects with him. He enters into his experience, the otherworldly being full of glory and power and wisdom that's almost too much to handle, connects with John in his fear. Can you imagine that? 
Could you imagine being contacted, coming, just even brushing up against, let alone having the hand of the Almighty touch you in grace? Jesus controls all things. He holds the power of angels in his hand, and yet he doesn't want his friend to be afraid. He doesn't want his friend to be afraid. Meeting this king is meeting an infinite power that also cares about how you are doing. It's also meeting an infinite friend. That's the God that we have in Christ, our King. And seeing Jesus then like this, when he is your hope, is not a terror, though John is reasonably and understandably afraid. Meeting Jesus like this is connection to the care and power of an infinite God, of having what Christianity has always told us our relationship was about from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. It was meant to be that we existed walking in, flourishing with the God of the universe walking alongside us, not wanting, not fearing, not going off on our own and not knowing what to do, but always having the ancient of days with the power and authority, with the righteousness and goodness to walk beside us in these things that we might not be alone. What was lost in the beginning comes back in the end. God does not give up on his special project, which is humanity, on his image. He returns us to a relationship we are moved beyond fear. So meeting this king inevitably changes us when we connect with him, changes our perspective, our experience, gives us courage and gives us care. So in light of this, I want to practically encourage you to do two things, to know this Jesus today and to be encouraged by him. I I want to ask you, do you know this Jesus? Or have you shrunk Jesus down so much in your thoughts, in your understanding, in your opinions, so that you and your understanding of the world, or your problems even, are big and Jesus is small. That by changing who he really is in your mind, you've tamed him somehow. You've put the star in the textbook instead of coming face to face with the actual blazing thing that it is. Do you know him as a God that you are meant to at the same time have a relationship with, not just know something about who connects with you as a friend through Jesus' redemptive work. You are now made a friend of God. Do you know him that way? Or are you keeping a comfortable distance and control? I'm not saying that your life hasn't been hard, that you haven't gone through some rough things, that maybe even church and the experience of God or any kind of religion has been hard. And God doesn't dismiss those things either. Christ came because life is hard. He came to redeem these things. So what might just one small step of invitation look like to you? To meet this God who would not lead you astray, even if others had, even if others have fallen short, to keep coming back to him. Know this powerful, glorious, caring Jesus at Christmas. This is what he is really like. 
Be encouraged by him then because verse 17 says he is the beginning and end of all things and that includes your life. That includes your story. That includes your circumstances right now. He is the beginning and the end and he holds all these things together. He is in it with you. He is only going to bring you to the end. No matter what happens, this is the king that stands beside you whether you can see him or not. He will have the final say. He will have the final word over your life. Be encouraged that though you may sleep, that though you may falter, he does not. He's going to make sure that you see his face like John saw his face, that you hear his voice, that you feel him connect with you in grace and love and kindness. What could possibly stand up to him? Let this power give you courage for your fears right now because Revelation tells us that Jesus is great and compared to him, everything else is small. Would you pray with me? Give you just a few moments to respond in your hearts about the things that we've just talked about, maybe thanking God for being so glorious and yet so caring about you. Maybe confessing the ways that that you've wanted God on your own terms that you've thought of him as small, that you've put him in a box. Or ask God to change your perspective, to encourage you, to humble you even, to make you new. Let's pray. Father, we need you to be big because we are so small. Would you help us, Lord? Would you have mercy on us, O Son of David? In your name and by your Spirit we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand for a song of response as we sing of the grace and glory that we have in Jesus Christ. I invite you to stretch briefly while I come down to the communion table because there is no song.